1: a season turn turn turn
0: and a time to every purpose under heaven a time to be born a time to die a time to plant a time to reap a time to kill a time to heal a time to laugh a time Welcome to our show. I'm very excited because this is an interview with somebody whose career I've been following, I think, since about 1979. Uh, It it is Elaine Pagels, who is one of the foremost scholars of religion uh, in America, maybe in in the world, although she's written a very different kind of book right now. So Elaine Pagels is joining us from Princeton, professor of religion at Princeton University uh, and the author of many books, including, very notably, The Gnostic Gospels, Beyond Belief, and more, more recently, Why Religion, A Personal Story. So first of all, um, I'm so happy to be talking to you after all these years.
1: Well, thank you so much. Yes, that first book was right after graduate school. Right. So that's a long time ago. I
0: actually remember I was at actually, believe it or not, at an international conference about Gnosticism, which at the time was, where were you? It was it was at Yale, and you were the only person who wasn't there. Everybody knew about you. I
1: was there. Were you at, at that one? Absolutely, was. I gave a talk. Uh, yeah, yeah, about okay. Gnosticism.
0: So my that's funny. My memory is failing me. That, but it was, I remember it was fashionable at the time. Everybody said Gnosticism at that conference.
1: I don't. Know. <laughs> well, yes. <laughs> so
0: anyway, now we're getting ahead of ourselves. So maybe maybe very quickly, since we're now referencing that, you should, for those people who just kind of missed out on all this, uh, when we talk about the Gnostic Gospels, what are we talking
1: about? Well, it was a big surprise when I went to graduate school, and I was thinking, you know, I want to find out what happened, how, how the Christian movement began. seems like a very unlikely movement given the story of Jesus. What do we know about Jesus? What do we know about the earliest history? And, you know, I was very surprised to find that my professors at the university had file cabinets full of Gospels I'd never heard of. Gospels like the Gospel of Thomas and the Gospel of Truth and the Gospel of Philip. I didn't know those things existed, and most of us didn't. They hadn't really been translated. So this was amazing to all of us. And the professors basically said, well, this stuff is, you know, it's just weird, heretical, kind of nonsensical stuff. But I actually loved some of it. And that's, that's how I dived into this whole find of over 50 ancient Christian texts that we just hadn't known about.
0: Among those texts uh, is uh, gos- the Gospel of Thomas, and from there emerges something that I think has become almost maybe this is n- unfair, kind of a mantra for you. I've yes. seen you say it a number of times in speeches. It's in the new book. I- I'll let you. I don't want to jump on your line or Thomas's <laughs> line, so you say it.
1: Well, it is Thomas's line, and actually, Colin, that's why I wrote the Gnostic Gospels. Mm. It was that line. As I said, our major professor said, well, we just thought this stuff was weird. But I was reading the Gospel of Thomas, which is just a list of the sayings of Jesus, as you know. Well, claims to be the sayings of Jesus. We don't actually know if he said them, but that's what it claims to be, his secret teaching. And the line that stood out for me was the one in which Jesus says, if you bring forth what is within you, what you bring forth will save you. If you do not bring forth what is within you, what you do not bring forth will destroy you. And I thought, wow, (laughs) that's remarkable. You don't have to believe it, it, but, but it's true.
0: After all these years, what does that mean to you?
1: Well, it's, you know, what it meant then was a kind of psychological statement about not suppressing what actually you experience and think and feel. Now, I understood it's also, for the tradition from which it comes, it's a theological statement. It's a statement about the image of God within every person. We're created in the image of God. It comes out of that Genesis tradition. And it's a statement about our actual connection uh, with the divine source. So,
0: you've assembled this formidable career as a scholar of religion. This new book, the subtitle is A Personal Story, and it's exactly that. It's a deeply, deeply personal story about how many of the paradoxes that we find in religion, we find it from the very wellsprings of religion, show up in your own life that you ultimately are confronted with the worst kinds of tragedies, really, that that people can endure. I I don't know if you want to say a little bit about that.
1: Well, I don't think they're the worst, actually. Mm -hmm. Uh, The worst kinds of tragedies, I think, would involve intentional violence. And Many people have been subjected to that, and Mm -hmm. I haven't. But this is, as you suggest, it's the loss of your closest family members. And it was devastating. But it wasn't just, I didn't want to write about that. I wanted to write about the question that I started with, even when I first encountered the power of religious experience as a teenager. And that's the question, because my family was not particularly religious and my father thought it was all sort of old folklore that only uneducated people would engage. You know, the Genesis story, Mm. obviously, Adam and Eve, all of that stuff. He thought, this is nonsense. He was a scientist. Mm. But I wanted to write about how I found those ancient stories, That the question of why is religion still around in the 20th century? Why do people still read something like the Bible, which after all is compilation of texts written thousands of years ago, I mean, why should we? Mm -hmm. And I think it has a lot to do with the way that those very ancient stories engage issues that human beings still encounter. Questions about the meaning of life, the meaning of death, um, what we should do with our lives, how to relate to people, how society should be, really basic questions of interpretation.
0: Yet it seems as though, I mean, religion is so full of paradoxes. I mean, I think it begins with a paradox. You know, for Homo sapiens, it begins with the paradox of, on the one hand, uh, we want to worship creation. We want to uh, make noise and art and song uh, uh, because of this fabulous beauty of creation. But we're also scared out of our minds because creation is terrifying. And we know from looking around us that everybody dies. We're going to die. We're going to be sad about that frequently throughout our lives. And religion kind of needs to address both of those things, right? The world is amazing and perfect, and also the world is deeply, deeply flawed.
1: Yes, you put it very well. I mean, you know, Genesis 1 says, well, you know, this amazing universe, God created it, and he said it was all good. And then in the second story, in the second chapter of Genesis, suddenly everything sort of turns bad when human beings get involved. And that story blames The existence of suffering and death on human sin, which is kind of a preposterous thing, but that's what it says.
0: Right. But I I think ultimately every religion uh, deals at some point with the question that there's a flaw, right? The egg is cracked somehow. Something, Something went wrong, and so what are we going to do about it? Well, maybe we're going to create beauty as much as we can and, and pray as much as we can and and do ritual as much as we can, either with the goal of bending together that crack or at least being able to, to live with it. I, you've studied religion way more than I have. Maybe you can react to that a little bit.
1: Well, I think you put it very well. I mean, people have imagined that there are invisible beings out there doing all this stuff to us. So one of the ways they responded in many cultures and times, is to see if they could please those invisible beings. They, you know, give them food on altars and bring them sacrifices and sort of try to do things that will make the invisible beings have the right response. Mm -hmm. Uh, it's, It's an amazing thing. I think it has to do with the human imagination. One of my closest friends was a wonderful theologian, James Cone. And I said to him, okay, so, so what is your theology about? He's brought up in the African Methodist Episcopal Church in Arkansas. He said, well, it's imagination. What else would it be? Mm-hmm. And and it is. And he was talking about how that kind of imagination was a way that people he grew up with in a very small black community in the South could cope with the difficulties of their lives, particularly injustice and segregation and racism and lynching, and that the the imagination of the Christian tradition, Jesus loves us, Jesus was crucified, Jesus rose from the dead, you know, uh, ride on King Jesus. They, They may kill you, but they didn't win. That kind of message was nevertheless very powerful and very important for the survival of the people who created those songs and that music. It
0: it seems as though one of the other paradoxes of religion, and it's certainly uh, contained in, in your book, In Why Religion?, is that, on the one hand, religion is also the place we turn to at our greatest moment of need. And, and, and in many cases, for many of us, it is the thing most capable of providing us with solace, with consolation, with sustenance. But it's also the institution most capable of failing us, failing us in a, in a bitterly disappointing way at a moment of need. And, and this is, I think, very much there in your book. This book, uh, you know, we should say, deals in part with, the first, the death of your son, at the age of six, and then about a year later, the death uh, of your husband. And, and, you know, in in chronicling the way that the latter event was handled and the, the service that you went, you went to, you found yourself sitting in a church getting really, really angry as opposed to being yeah. consoled and inspired. And I don't know, maybe you can just say something. I, to me, that is one of those paradoxes.
1: Well, it is, and you put it well. I mean, the fact is, though, from what you said, people go to it as a last resort. I mean, first thing you would go to is medicine. If you're dealing with illness or somebody having an accident, Mm -hmm. it's only when nothing else works Mm -hmm. that people very often will turn to some kind of instinctive prayer, like, God, don't let this happen or whatever, you know. And so as a last resort, what people want to have happen doesn't come through. But nevertheless, these are the ways we interpret events. And you can interpret a great loss or a great disappointment as a reason for despair or not. And I saw that. I saw how some people, you know, they go into depression and they just sort of go down. Mm. And other people don't. And one way they don't is you you mentioned so many ways, not just through religion, but people who find ways to engage their experience, say, in painting and music and theater, in forms of art or maybe forms of service to other people. For example, I think of the people whose children have been killed by gun violence Mm. or those children in Florida whose classmates were gone down i mean what they have done with that horrendous catastrophe is try to make sure that it doesn't happen again or more try to prevent it so they've taken a very positive response and that's another extremely important way people deal with these things
0: i think that's true although on the you know the argument can be made and has been made that the purest expression of religion is the kind of thing that you just talked about. The purest one of the places that I really love, I was there two weeks ago, is the place that actually sort of began to fix me after 9-11. I was I fell into this horrible hole of blackness. And really? one day I was standing in in December after 9-11, I was standing in the Cathedral of St. John the Divine up in the Morningside Heights. You know, and that's a a church that is obviously on the one hand a church, but it couldn't be more dedicated to art and music and poetry. Yes. There's a poet's corner where you can go and read the words of great poets and something about just the feeling of that building began to kind of fix me. But I, I I do feel as though, you know, there's that. There's religion and its direct connection to human expression of joy and sorrow through art and other kinds of expression. And then there's doctrine and dogma. And it seems to me that's the place so many people get in trouble. If religion were just expression, they'd have a easier time. But at some point or other Bishops and people like that start saying, "No, it's not that way. It's this way. It's this way. It's not that way." And I think that's often where people start to get angry and disappointed.
1: Yes, I have a real problem with doctrine, as the way people understand, say, religion. They ask, "What do you believe? <laughs> do you believe in God? Do you believe Jesus is the Son of God?" I mean, and I think, for me, belief is it, it's important. I'm not saying it's not. But it's overrated because in the fourth century, when Constantine became a Christian and wanted to turn his empire, the Roman Empire, into a Christian state, what he did was invite all the bishops to a conference. They, signed, they wrote a document I believe in one God, Father Almighty, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And they said, if you sign that document, you're on, you're with us, you're a Christian. If you don't sign that document, you're not. And many people I know, and I imagine that you do too, will say, well, I'm not sure I believe in Jesus as God and light from light and all of that. And because of their own honesty, they just leave this tradition behind. But what you speak about, walking into a church, hearing the liturgy, hearing the music, that sense of transcendence that you see in the architecture of a place like that, that is a different experience entirely. And that is an experience. It's not a set of beliefs. And I, I really feel that these traditions speak best, for me, to the emotions and to our need, or at least the need of some of us, which is pretty acute, to have a sense of a spiritual dimension in our life. Not to believe in six impossible things before breakfast, as uh, Lewis Carroll put in Alice in Wonderland.
0: Uh, there's, uh, I think it's in your book. I hope I'm not getting it wrong. That notion that the earlier word for communion was communion was mysterium uh, before it was sacrament. Uh,
1: ah, the word for sacrament. Yes, yeah. it is. I mean, ritual, right? I mean, for me, walking into a church, some church a Catholic chapel in the mountains of Colorado. I'm not a Catholic, but you walk in there and you hear the monks singing in those mountains. It can be absolutely a, a deep well of silence and a deep sense of connection, not only with those people, but with their connection with the universe and with the divine. So that is a very different kind of reality. And I think you're absolutely in the right direction. The one about doctrine and what do you believe, to me, is superficial compared with that.
0: I would agree. So I think the other thing here, and one of the interesting, I think it's a tension in this book. I'm talking, by the way, to Elaine Pagels uh, about her new book, Why Religion? A Personal Story, if you're just tuning in. One of the inter- interesting tensions between this uh, in this book is, well, as you say, your father was placed science uh, over religion. You're also married to a very prominent uh, physicist surrounded by people who work in the sciences. And we often think of there being this tension between that world World of steadfast scientific empiricists, and then people who are drawn to the spirit, and as if those two things were kind of irreconcilable, and that out there on the streets, so to speak, it's all about facts and hard-nosed reality, and then you go into this church, and then maybe you do <laughs> yes. something spiritual, and and I think one of the things that is very clear from this book in particular is that for a lot of us that's not true. That one reason that we we seek out spiritual experiences in churches is because life feels very spiritual a lot of the time. This book has you talking a lot about dreams, visions, perceptions that you had at certain moments that you know don't necessarily fall within a very kind of linear Newtonian view of the
1: world. That's right. And again, you've brought up a very important thing. I mean, I was brought up in that sort of 19th century conflict between religion and science since my father, as I said, he was brought up in a intensely Presbyterian church, literal-minded. The world was created in six days. And as soon as he found science, he said, this is nonsense. And he dropped it, quite rightly, because it doesn't deal with the same issues that engaged him as a scientist. But today, I think we have a very different sense, except for some scientists. I'm thinking, of, for example, of A remarkable scientist, a physicist, Steve Weinberg at the University of Texas, he wrote a book called The First Three Minutes about the beginning of the universe. And Steve is uh, avowedly and intensely an atheist, and he pretends to base this on science. So he says famously, the more we know about the universe, the more we know it is pointless and meaningless. And my husband used to laugh at that. Because he said, that has nothing to do with physics. That's an interpretation that has nothing to do with elementary particles. So scientists who understand much better than Steve Weinberg, I believe, Einstein did, is that physics is a closed system. It talks about the movement of particles. Geology is a system that talks about, you know, how minerals interact and so forth. It doesn't engage the question of meaning. That's just a different set of questions. It's a different set of, it's a totally different paradigm. So these two can exist. And I think, as you just said, I think for many of us, they have to. I love science. I thought it was fascinating. I still do. But it doesn't answer the questions. It speaks about data, but it doesn't speak about what the data means in that sort of philosophical religious sense.
0: Right. And I think a lot of us live also, again, with a kind of a paradoxical relationship to all of this. I had a friend who was touring Ireland 30 or so years ago, and she was visiting a guest house owned by a local woman. And the woman had kind of boarded up all the uh, apertures, the flue of the fireplace and windows and stuff to keep out little people. And so my friend said, do you believe in fairies and little people? And she said, no, no. But they're there, um, and, and there's a little bit of that, right? I don't believe in this, but it's also there. Somehow.
1: Well, it's just that it's, it's a different part of our experience or part of the brain. My husband liked to tell a story about a famous physicist, I think it was Niels Bohr, in Scandinavia. When someone else came to visit him at his house, he said, wait a minute, you have a horseshoe over your barn what is that about? You don't believe in that stuff, do you? And Niels Bohr said, well, of course not, but it works even if you don't believe in it. <laughs> yeah. And I like that story very much because because these what we believe and what we imagine has a lot to do with how we feel and how we act, right? right. So if you think your act is meaningless and futile and... That nothing has meaning, that shapes a great deal of action and emotion, and the same is true with hope. And I think that these religious traditions are, at their best, sort of designed to move us toward hope. As you describe with that, <laughs> uh, the moment of national crisis at nine eleven. Yes. When we're just stopped and shocked, and and yet there's something there that says, "All right, but this isn't all." <laughs>
0: Right. I mean, there are any number of possible religious responses to 9-11, as you point out in the book. The other one is a very adversarial book of revelations-based you know, based response uh, that oh, well, all this bad stuff is happening. And I've been well prepared for that by the Bible as, as well. That's how some people took it.
1: Well, you know, one reason I study things – I mean, one reason I've been very much interested in looking at the stories of Adam and Eve or Satan or the book of Revelation, none of which I – quote-unquote believe in, you know, in some uh, some way out there, is that those stories are part of our culture in such a deep way. They communicate aspects of our culture. For example, you mentioned people who responded to 9-11 with, you know, we're going to fight back and, and kill all the bad people, uh, which of course is exactly what what Al-Qaeda was trying to do as well. Um That comes out of a deep tradition in this culture which is embodied in the Hebrew Bible of God being on one side of a military conflict and destroying the other side because it's evil. And you see that in the book of Revelation. It's about good against evil. And there's a reason why that book has been used in warfare for 2,000 years. It's been used by people on both sides. Mm -hmm in the Civil War on the South side, on the side of the Confederacy, and on the side of the North. In World War II, it's been used by Hitler, who was bringing in, by the way, the thousand-year reign of Christ, if you, in case you didn't know, but that's what, the, that's what his propaganda said. And it was used on the Allied side to see Hitler as, as the beast, the monster. And it's, it's used today on the Internet to describe any political figure you might have in mind.
0: We're going to take a little break right now. Uh, we're talking to Elaine Peggles and the new book is Why Religion, A Personal Story. We'll be back after this. Oh, I speak in tongues of men and angels. I'm just sounding brass and tinkling cymbals without love. Love suffers long. Love is kind. all all things, all things. Love has no evil in mind. We're talking to Elaine Piggles right now. Uh, she is the author of many books, including, I think famously, The Gnostic Gospels. Uh, her new book is Why Religion? A Personal Story. So uh, you mentioned both at the beginning and at the end of this book that this is an extraordinarily difficult book for you to write. It is very, very different from everything else that you've ever written. It yes. took you about 25 years, I think, to get to a point where uh, you might write such a book. Maybe, can you say anything about that process or about the decision to go forward with it?
1: Yes, Colin. It's the kind of book I never imagined I would write. Uh, I love to write history, and I, I've enjoyed so much the work that I do. I just I love doing it. Um, this, but but every book I've written is a book that I really felt I had to write, starting with the Gnostic Gospels um, and the Origin of Satan and Beyond Belief, and each one for me focused on an issue that I very much needed to engage. This one surprised me. I just suddenly thought, wait a minute, um, when when my son died, when our son died. Um, of a very rare illness at the age of six. And a year later, when my husband was killed in a hiking accident, um, I had to put those catastrophic events behind me. I couldn't think about them then because we had just adopted two children who were babies at the time of my husband's death. Uh, I had to take over and do everything that two parents had done and make a life for myself and those children. So I went ahead and did a lot of things. (laughs) And some of the trauma of those events, particularly the second, which was so unexpected, just had to be in the background. I think the brain protects us sometimes from things we absolutely think we can't survive. Now that both of these children that I raised are in their late 20s and out of the house, I realized I could, I had time and the necessity to allow those events to come back and to allow them to be experienced in a way that I couldn't have before. But it wasn't just about those kinds of losses. It's about, why is it that I study religion? Why do I love this field? Why are... Why has this study become a kind of yoga that also has a healing quality for difficult events, but not just dramatic ones, but also for just questions we all ask about whether there's a meaning to life, what happens after we die, um, what should we be doing, (laughs) what matters most. So just this book kind of emerged in a way that I didn't expect. And it could not have happened as you said, any time before 25 years after those events, because they were just too difficult. Uh, But now, having written about them, I'm glad I did.
0: I should say that I am the uh, father of an adoptive son also in his late 20s. And one of the things that always strikes me, and I think I've said it to him at least once, is that I can't imagine all kinds of different paths that I could have taken, things I could have done differently, places I might have lived, people I might have wound up with. I can't imagine that he and I wouldn't intersect in exactly the way that we did. It just, I mean, my mind won't do that. It won't get me to the point where, which, you know, feels an awful lot like what we often call fate. Um, like, I just absolutely feel like I was meant to be with him. And, there's so much in this book that's like that. I mean, I keep coming back to this idea that one of the reasons that we become spiritual is because life is spiritual. Your descriptions of Mark, who just emerges as this wonderful uh, character and person in this story, include these sort of amazing little things. And I'll just mention one of them. There's a moment when you're talking to him. Uh, I think you're in Central Park. And he starts talking about this other kind of character, this other person who's, gonna, who's with him in this fantasy. And you say, what's her name? And he says, Sarah. And he doesn't really know anybody named Sarah. And then when you eventually adopt your first daughter, um, your first ad- adoption, um, you wind up adopting this baby who has, it turns out, been called Sarah prior to your arrival. And you decide to keep that name. You know, and we can talk about synchronicity and stuff. There, there's, but there's a lot of these kinds of stories in the book. To me, it's one of the things that makes life feel spiritual.
1: Isn't that interesting? You know, I hesitated to about whether to include experiences that I thought some people may say, okay, now she's really gone off the deep end. But but what had happened was that I was having coffee with a friend who's a poet, Marie Howe, uh, in New York. And she'd written a beautiful poem called Annunciation. It's about the angel Gabriel uh, appearing to Mary. And Mary has a sense of a presence of overpowering love. So I said, "Marie, that's a wonderful poem. How did you, how did you happen to write that?" She said, "Well, it happened to me. Something like that happened. But of course, I couldn't say that." Mm. I said, "Well, why not?" She said, "Well, that's the last taboo." <laughs> mm-hmm. And I thought, "Oh, really? <laughs> I'm going to write about that kind of thing. Just..." she was unwilling to say it had happened to her. And I'm a scholar. And I thought, if I write about things that, experiences I can't explain, people are saying, that's a little weird, don't you think? But I was recently at a conference in California uh, called Experiences I Can't Explain, to which psychiatrists and poets, scholars, all kinds of people, scientists came. And we each talked about different experiences we couldn't explain. And as you know, many people have them. Um, they often don't talk about them. So I just thought, OK, that's part of the experience. I don't know what, how to explain it. Um, precisely note. <laughs> but as you say, that's a part of our awareness. That's the kind of region to which religious experience and tradition often speaks.
0: I, it is amazing. I mean, Marie Howe is correct. This is in an odd way, in, at least in a in the secular part of society. Um, I mean, Stoppard, we were talking about Stoppard before we went on the air here, uh, but there's one point in one of his plays where one of the characters talking about this idea of the sort of purely secular view of the world versus the religion one, he goes, what was the point at which, so to speak, the nose had it, you know? Uh, <laughs> the, and,
1: and, and for a while, for a while, yeah.
0: <laughs> but, the, but the truth is, and I think people resist this stuff also because they think if they grant the uh, the reality or or give some kind of acknowledgement to one or two of these little experiences they have to buy the whole farm along with it and, and to me the reality is I mean I, you know I I don't think I've ever said this on the air either but uh, I talk routinely to two women who are dead one of them. People who listen to the show know is a pastor who died of ALS. While I was very, very close to her, but before that, there was a woman who was a very, very uh, potent figure in the Wiccan movement uh, who died very young. And to this day, I talk to her all the time. And these are not, in my view, symbolic or metaphorical conversations. If I'm talking to one of these people, I'm talking to them. But I, that, I don't really know. Ex- I don't fit that into some larger pattern. You know what I'm saying? Like the thing that happens is just the thing.
1: I do. Uh, it's just one doesn't know how to do that. I mean, I did write in the book about, well, I had grown up told and believed that that death is, uh, as Steve Jobs put it so well, um, lights out. You mm-hmm. know, that's it. Nothing after that. Molecules disperse. And I did really believe that. When I experienced the loss of people close to me, that was not the way I experienced it. And that was really a surprise. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was counter to what I believed. But things happened. I don't know what to make of it. Is this, you know, imagination, the refu- you know, denial of reality? I don't know. But it didn't feel like that. And so I just think the universe is a lot more mysterious than we <laughs> understand. And my husband always felt that, you know, to maintain a rational direction of thought we have to suppress a lot of perceptions that don't really fit into that paradigm and and i think these are some of some some of those kinds of experience
0: i, I think another th- thing that is true about this is that children before we either beat doctrine into them or beat religion out of them or whatever it is we're going to wind up doing to them. Children are pretty spiritual. I mean, once again, one of the things that emerges about Mark, things that he says, ways in which he talks about his own reality. I mean, most of our most of our children are spiritual before we can decide what they're going to be.
1: Yeah, that is part of our part of our human equipment, I guess. And and then we can unlearn it, <laughs> like many others. But I was thinking when you said that, Colin, about the stories in the Bible, which are pretty naive—the story of Adam and Eve—I um, have some problems with that one. But story of Job and you know, story of Cain and Abel. These are not, of course, to be taken literally, but they—they they can be true uh, in certain ways. They can speak to truth. So Marianne Moore said that. Poems are imaginary gardens with real toads in them, and that's how I think of these biblical stories. Many of them are imaginary. They didn't happen the way they're told, but they have human realities in there which they address and which we recognize when we hear them.
0: It's uh, it, it, one of the things that I love about this book is how much poetry runs through it. I should tell you that I'm sitting in a little tiny room uh, and if I were to walk out the door of this room and take, I'd say six steps in a northerly direction, I would be looking out the window at the route that Wallace Stevens walked every day from <laughs> work uh, from from home to work and then from work to home. and And there's that poem that you've got in the book and I can't bring it back up, but it's it's about the yes after the no, which is I think also very much what we're talking about here
1: it's called the well-dressed man with the beard mm-hmm. and it starts out after the final no there comes a yes and on that yes the future world depends no is the night yes is this present sun
0: so if stop is asking when did the nos have it well <laughs> maybe the nos don't always have it
1: uh no, I think the affirmation is what you find in in these traditions. I mean, the claim that, say, Jesus was captured by his enemies and unjustly accused and tortured and executed, that's as bad as it gets. That's where the Gospel of Mark ends. But somehow, that isn't understood to be the end. I mean, the author writes the good news of Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God, because... He's convinced somehow that even though that looks like a total no, (laughs) something else, something mysterious, something deeper than disaster is at work here. Otherwise, it it couldn't be good news at all. And, And that's the mysterious quality of these texts. They speak to something very deep in our experience and our need to have hope.
0: All right, that's going to set us up uh, wonderfully for the final segment here. We're going to take a break. We're talking to Elaine Pagels right now. Her new book is Why Religion, A Personal Story. We'll be right back after this. Trying to catch the scent of what's coming to be. All right, I'm back with Elaine Pagels, uh, the author of many books, including The Gnostic Gospels, and and now the author of Why Religion, A Personal Story. So, um, you know, at the end of the book, we circle back uh, to where it all kind of began, where it all began in the 70s for you, where we kind of begin a little bit in the book, too. We come back to these Gospels, these sort of non-canonical uh, Gospels that seem so different uh, in many ways from from the canonical Gospels, uh, and they seem to have sort of very different sets of messages and, and I don't know. There's sort of a kinder, gentler quality to some of them, and uh, maybe you can just sort of talk about why. Why do you end the book there? Is it? Are you still mining these texts for whatever they have for you?
1: Yes. Uh, well, it was a big surprise, as I said, to find out that there weren't just four gospels—the ones in the New Testament—but, but literally. I don't know how many others, but we know of about six or seven, which are quite remarkable, including the Gospel of Mary Magdalene. These are written early. These are written about the time of the others, late first century, early second century, something like that. And the question that we kept asking is the one you just asked, Colin, What what's different about those? And why did the bishops burn them, ban them, denounce them, call them heresy? What I came to is the sense that that happened in the 4th century. Before that, these texts were read by Christians, passed around, treasured. They were read by monks in in uh, monasteries um, who loved them. What's different about these other texts is that they claim to be secret teaching or second-level advanced teaching. And what they teach is... Primarily, is that each one of us can find access to the divine source because we have access within ourselves. We have a capacity within ourselves to find God. Um, and, And you don't need a church. You don't need an institution. You may not even need Jesus. You just can find your way there. But that's a message that an institutional church that called itself Catholic Universal and said, hey outside the church there's no salvation, did not want to have communicated because it suggested you might not need the church. Now, I happen to like a lot of things about some Christian churches, the liturgy, the music, the poetry, the depth one finds in worship, and also in the the life that Christian churches can articulate. Saw that in the the work of Martin Luther King, Jr., and through many Christians, countless Christians, all over the world in different groups. But these other texts say something different. They say there's a transcendent reality that you can engage if you just look hard enough. And that's a message that, as I say, it didn't support institutional churches. So they wanted that suppressed so that your only route to God would be a kind of monopoly on the divine, which was controlled and channeled through the institutional churches. You know...
0: um uh, there was uh, the work that you did and other scholars did on these Nag Hammadi uh, texts. Uh, and, and then later in the popular imagination, the Da Vinci Code came out uh, and also talked about these kind of counter propositional versions of what had been for off a lot of people, settled theology or settled biblical story. And I remember I was taking my son to the eye doctor one day and I was sitting out in the waiting room while he was in there and there were four or five very young women uh, working at the front desk, and they were talking back and forth about this stuff. And they'd been watching some documentaries on television that that, that brought up these kinds of things, these rather exciting ideas that that are non-canonical. You know, whether it's that maybe Jesus got married, maybe Jesus had a twin brother. Uh, yes. You know, and they were thrilled by that. They appeared to be quite a few of them, if not all of them, were Latina. I got the sense they'd been brought up Catholic. And but that notion, wait a minute, maybe there's all kinds kinds of things that they haven't been telling us, things that might even be a little bit more reassuring to us or affirming of, of who we specifically are. And, and the, I sensed a real current of liberation among them. I, I, I
1: react to that. Absolutely. I get letters about that all the time and have ever since that book came out. Mm-hmm. It's And I love those texts for that. Um, why should there be one kind of interpretation of this Christian story? I mean, there actually were many, and what we see now is a very narrow strand of what Orthodoxy preserved. Orthodoxy—I always love remembering that it—it it means straight thinking, and it's related to the word orthodontia, which is about straight teeth. Um, you know, the fathers of the church wanted everyone to think the way they thought. But for example, you ask, "Do I?" still engage these sources. I'm working now on the Gospel of Truth because it tells the story of Jesus a very different way, to put it most simply. The Gospel of John says Jesus came into the world to die because you and I are so sinful that a loving God cannot forgive your sins or mine unless an innocent person is tortured and executed as a sacrifice for your sins. Some people might think that's a strange message. Um, it is the teaching of Christian churches. God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten, and so forth. So the Gospel of Truth says, "Wait a minute! Here's another way to 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 another context. It talks about Jesus coming into the world and finding people lost and frightened, feeling isolated and scared in a universe which seems to have no meaning. So, according to this." version of the story, God sends Jesus into the world to teach us, as it says, what's written in our heart. What's written in our heart is that we belong to the same family. We belong to the divine source that brought the universe into being, which is called the the Heavenly Father, and the Heavenly Mother, which is the name for the Holy Spirit, because the name for spirit in Hebrew is, is feminine, also Syriac. Uh, feminine. So it says, Jesus brings us into the Father, into the Mother, Jesus of the infinite sweetness. It's a beautiful story about how we belong to each other and to this family, which includes all beings. Um, So I think it's a very different kind of story. It says, well, yes, Jesus dies because malignant and ignorant people get a hold of him, and they torture him and they kill him. But that's not the point. The point is that when that happens, we discover that he's within us and he discovers that we are within him. So we discover that we are connected in that. It's not because we're so sinful that somebody had to, to pay with his life. So I think this is a different story. To me it is liberating and I like it. I, to me it resonates in a way that the other one doesn't now. I'm not saying we should have one and not the other, but we should have many stories.
0: I'm, I'm resonating with a, um, a Manly Hopkins poem, and I don't think I can quote it qu- quite correctly, but there, it ends with this, in a flash, in a trumpet crash, I am all at once what Christ was, because he was what I am. And then right. And he says, it's Jack, joke, poor, pot, shirt, matchwood, match <laughs> that whole thing at the end. But,
1: but that, immortal diamond. Immortal the only, diamond, yeah. You got the whole thing. That's great. <laughs> no, it's a beautiful thing. And, you know, I am what he was, and then he— Hopkins also talks about seeing Christ in every man's face. I mean, he had a real sense of that. And also in the beauty of the the world is charged with the grandeur of God. It will shine out like shining from shook foil. It's so beautiful. Hopkins had a sense of that mystery and beauty of the world and our connection to it.
0: While this show uh, is uh, being recorded between you and me, we're actually on the air with a different show. And it's a show about uh, uh, um, uh, – is a discussion of a television program called The Good Place. I don't know if anybody has made you watch The Good Place yet. I haven't seen it. Uh, you absolutely have to watch this. It's a situation comedy that takes place in the afterlife, and it's very thoughtful. <laughs> it's it's very thoughtful. And, and the um, – uh, the protagonist is a person who's wound up in what appears to be heaven, the good place, despite having been a total reprobate in life. Uh, and, um, and she's constantly being instructed by people around her about how to be a better person. We do, we do have a little clip from the show where she's talking. Her name is Eleanor. She's talking to a divine being uh, named Michael. Go ahead, Wolfie. Um, so who was right? I mean, about all of this? Well, let's see. Hindus are a little bit right, Muslims a little bit, Jews, Christians, Buddhists. Every religion guessed about 5%, except for Doug Forsett.
1: Who's Doug Forsett?
0: Well, Doug was a stoner kid who lived in Calgary during the 1970s. One night he got really high on mushrooms, and his best friend Randy said, Hey, what do you think happens after we die? and Doug just launched into this long monologue where he got like 92% correct. I mean, we couldn't believe what we were hearing. That's him actually, right up there. He's pretty famous around here. So there you go. I I hope I hooked you with that one clip. But, you know, there's another point where Eleanor talks about a voice that she hears from time to time when she's about to do something bad. And it made me think uh, a little bit about, uh, from the Gnostic Gospels, uh, trimorphic protonoia. There's that, I am a voice speaking softly. I exist from the first. I dwell within the silence that surrounds every one of them. uh, And so on, this notion of this hidden voice. And I guess maybe as we start to end this conversation, Elaine Piggles, which I wish would go on even longer, but it can't. Um, I wonder about, do you hear a voice? You're just dealing with this, these texts all the time, but do you feel, I don't know, individually spoken to in that way?
1: I feel that these texts speak to kinds of experiences that we all have. Yes. I mean, for me, they're they're quite real. And, um, you know, they speak about reality in a very different way. It's not anything that makes it easy to understand uh, conceptually. But there's a deeper resolution than our understanding, Um, and I find much of that in these texts. Also in the Gospels in the New Testament, you know, and as you said, in many other sources, Uh, the character there, Michael, (laughs) uh, got it right, I think.
0: All right. We're going to stop there. Uh, I think the conversation between you, the listener, and Elaine Pagels should continue, will continue, uh, if you start reading Why Religion, A Personal Story. Elaine Pagels, I've been waiting a long time to talk to you, and it's been everything I hoped it would be.
1: Thank you. I really enjoyed it. Thanks so much.
0: All right. And thanks for listening. Thanks to Betsy Kaplan for pulling all this stuff together, and to Wolfie for running the board. He refused to answer because he's naked and
1: ashamed. Who's that writing? John Revelator. Who's that writing?